Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of Zero Hour. Today's episode features three television actors that you'll probably know if you followed television any time in the, uh, oh, I don't know, last 40 years or so. <laughs> anyway, our first one is Ed Nelson. He's the main star of tonight's show. He's most famous for being in Peyton Place from 1964 to 1969. He was also in uh, the... The TV movies made about it, Murder in Peyton Place and Peyton Place, The Next Generation. Uh, he's also uh, been in, and this is amazing, The Fugitive, The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, uh, Tightrope, The Blue Angels, uh, The 11th Hour Thriller, uh, Channing, um, and Mission Impossible. So those are some amazing series he has been in over time, and we get a chance to enjoy uh, Ed Nelson in this episode, and what's nice is he's still alive, he's 85 years old, and Barbara Anderson, our female lead in the episode, is also still alive, she's 68 years old, and uh, you might know her from Star Trek, she was in the episode The Conscience of the King, she was also in the very first pilot movie of The Six Million Dollar Man, but she's most famous for being in Ironside, she was in Ironside from... Um, 1967 when it started up until um, she did the first 105 episodes and she left in 1971. Uh, she got married and wanted to devote time to having her, to her children and her marriage, uh, which is cool. Um, so if you watch old episodes of Ironside, you will see her on that. I'm trying to see which character she played. I, I can't remember the character's name, but it's the main female character police officer that works with... Um, Ironside. Uh, well, she was also on Night Gallery. Interesting. And Harry O. Boy, these people are in a lot of my favorite series. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I've not seen what her name is on this show. I'm sure it's up here somewhere. But, um, oh, here it is. Eve Whitfield. She played Eve Whitfield and was also in um, when uh, they reprised their roles in Ironside when um, the Return of Ironside movie was, was on. It was one of the last films, later films, that... Um, uh, Aaron, uh, that uh, Raymond Burr was in and uh, before he passed away. Anyway, so uh, then the, their third person is unfortunately not with us any longer, so this is a chance to enjoy him one more time. This is Richard Deacon, and Richard Deacon was in just, I mean, I knew him from the time I was a little, little kid because he was in, um, of course, Leave it to Beaver. He played Fred Rutherford, uh, Lumpy Rutherford's dad, in the series from 1957 to 1963, and in 1961, he started being on the Dick Van Dyke Show as Mel Cooley, and uh, he was, I loved him as Mel, I loved him as Fred Rutherford, uh, he was also on the Desi uh, Comedy Hour, and uh, for one of the episodes, he also replaced R uh, Roger C. Carmel in uh, the second season of The Mothers-in-Law, and I don't think the second season is available. The first season is definitely uh, available on, let me think here, Hulu, because I started watching some of the episodes of that. It's, uh, I believe, produced and directed by Desi Arnaz, so that's kind of cool to see. Uh, anyway, he was in just a lot of different television shows, and it's neat to hear him in this performance as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and remember, if you would like to get access to 
uh, my even higher resolution versions of these episodes, because I can't put them out in, if I'm going to link them all together, it just takes too much room if I put them out in my absolute highest resolution. But if you want to hear these in a little higher resolution, uh, without my intros, just the way I got them, uh, these episodes are available along with um, all my Jack Bennies, um, all my Bing Crosbys, um, just a lot of my different series, my Lemon Abners that are in high quality, my Gunsmokes that are in high quality. Anyway, uh, if you want to donate $50 to the podcast, then I'll give you a link that will connect you up so you can download as many of those shows as you would like. Because we could always use the support, because um, we're way behind, of course, on uh, covering our bandwidth. We're still a long ways away before we get hit the point where I have to be desperate on it, but... I just thought I would throw that out there. Anyway, and if you want to talk to me about that, or um, you can, through PayPal, send to my uh, buckbennyotr at gmail.com or ask me for my address, and I'll send it to you so that you can mail a check uh, to me f- to support the podcast, because we always could use that. Uh, enjoy tonight's wonderful episode of Zero Hour Really nice, clear sounding quality. I don't think it's stereo. Part of it might be, I'm not sure. But um, it still sounds really good. Uh, In the next few weeks, I think we've got some of our stereo versions where I have the episodes in stereo coming up, which is really cool. Enjoy. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Tony Hillerman's haunting tour of terror. The Blessing Way. Starring Ed Nelson. Barbara Anderson. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Superstition. Any belief or attitude that is inconsistent with the known laws of science or with what is generally considered in a particular society as true and rational, or so says Webster's unabridged dictionary. But who is to say what is true and rational? You decide for yourself. This week, a story of science versus superstition. Dr. Bergen McKee, a scientist of the non-laboratory variety, a cultural anthropologist, a Ph.D., a published scholar on the subject of Navajo Indian witchcraft, but someone who doubts himself as a man. Dr. Bergen McKee is about to set out into the field to complete some unfinished research. 
death is something that is embodied in all societies. Murder is quite something else. And for Dr. Bergen McKee, all the textbooks in the world won't be able to wake him from the terrible nightmare that is waiting for him. Our story, The Blessing Way, will begin after this word. Picture this. A moonlit night above the vast plateau region of northeastern Arizona, Navajo country. Rugged terrain, sandstone laced with granite, cut into hundreds of deep canyons and mazes of arroyos, a crazy quilt of erosion. The valley, bordered on the east by the Lucachucai Mountains, rising still and stoic from the depths of what the Navajo call Many Ruins Canyon. Along the western slope, a faint flickering light, practically invisible. It is a small fire, built in the extreme corner of a natural enclosure, giving the face of Lewis Horseman a reddish cast. It is a young face, thin and sensitive, with large black eyes and a sullen mouth. Lewis Horseman hears nothing but the fire and the wind. It is only when he raises his eyes that he sees the towering shadow of the two-legged wolf who's watching him from behind. Suddenly, he turns and gapes in stark terror at the big man with wolf skin draped across his shoulders. The forepaws hanging down the front of his huge chest. The beast's empty skull pushed back on his forehead, its snout pointing upward. I won't tell. I, I won't tell. <laughs> 400 miles to the east, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Dr. Bergen McKee, age 38, University professor, Department of Anthropology, sits in his apartment at his desk, grading final examination papers. Uh, that's a very good point, Miss Ferguson. I agree wholeheartedly, but you really should quote your source. Dr. Bergen McKee, social and psychotherapeutic utility of Navajo wolf and frenzy superstitions. Albuquerque, University Press, 1967, pages 71 through 73. You'll never get the graduate degree plagiarizing this way. It happens this way every term. Papers come in. I wait until the very last moment before grades are due, and I sit up late and curse my students' ineptitude, slash away with my red pencil, and then wish them all a happy summer vacation on the bottom of the last page. Always the same predictable Dr. McKee. Ogre in tweeds, the monster slayer and proponent of the scapegoat theory, re-Navajo primitive superstition. I fell asleep at my desk and woke up the morning of May 26th in the same position, hardly fitting for a man like myself. Two letters were on my mind. One of them I'd mailed a month ago to Joe Leaphorn, Navajo Tribal Council, Law and Order Division, Window Rock, Arizona. Intimating that I might return to his neck of the woods to resume my studies in the field. I had sent such a letter once a year for the past six years, but never went. It was six years ago that I'd received the other letter that was on my mind. A note, actually. Fifteen words in blue ink on blue paper. Berg, I am meeting Scotty in Las Vegas tonight. I won't contest the divorce. Sarah. 
It was late morning by the time I arrived at the university. I took my mail from the faculty box and had just retreated to my office when... Bird, where would you look on the Navajo reservation for an electrical engineer testing his gadgets? Well, who wants to find him? A daughter of a friend of mine, a girl named uh, Ellen Leone. She says this guy drives a light green van and is doing some kind of research that has to be away from electrical transmission lines, telephone wires, stuff like that. Well, that narrows it down to about 90% of the reservation. 90% of 25,000 square miles. I know. Damn flatlanders never know geography. They think the reservation's about the size of Central Park. Why is she looking for him? Well, you don't ask a woman something like that, Berg. Just imagine it's something romantic. She spurned him. He ran, ran off to mend his broken heart, and now she wants to kiss and make up. <laughs> An unlikely story. Well, I told her we'd look for him. Did you now? Well, now, you don't want to make a liar out of your honorable colleague, do you? We'll look. If we don't find him, we don't find him. Doesn't really matter. She'll be coming out herself in a few days. Well, are you kidding? A woman? Beyond question. About five foot five, slim, long dark hair, and wearing a checkered pantsuit? You saw her in the hall? I saw her in the hall. Very pretty. Mm-hmm. Well, well, what's what's this? Uh, Dr. Canville, do you mind? We may share an office, but that didn't give you the right to tamper with my mail. I see you've heard from your boy in Window Rock. Yeah, Joe Leaphorn. Leaphorn. Is that an Indian name? He's a Navajo, if that's what you're asking. Well, where do you want to start hunting for witches? Jeremy. Bergen. <laughs> Look, how about starting over in the West Slope, beyond the Lucachucas, the Many Ruins Canyon? That's my specialty, ruins. If you've got some witches in there to scrutinize, there'd be plenty of ruins to keep me busy. <laughs> Jeremy, what's the fellow's name with the green truck? Paul. Jimmy W. Hall, Ph.D., the young woman's name is Ellen Leone. Oh, they're not married, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> I'm I'm glad you decided to go, Bergen. I think maybe I should ask for a guarantee that your witches won't get me. My Navajo wolves, being strictly psychotherapeutic, are certified harmless. Here, get. What's this? Look, looks like a frog. Reed Clan Totem. One of the holy people. Good for fending off corpse powder. No self-respecting Navajo wolf will bother you now. I guarantee it. Dr. Green got my graded papers by the noon deadline, and I was on my way to Navajo country inside of 48 hours. We packed most of the gear in the Canfields camper, I drove the pickup on ahead and arranged to stay with Joe Leaphorn and his wife, Emma, for a day or two, however long it would take Jeremy to reach the reservation. Since I had seen him, Joe had passed the milestone age of 30, and his stomach was no longer rock hard. He also wore his black hair differently, cut short, not in long braids, the traditional Navajo style. It was a most pleasant evening. There was no mention of my own ill-fated marriage. In the morning, Joe and I drove to his office at Window Rock, where we got down to business in hand. I'm afraid that's about all we've got that might interest you, Bergen. We don't know what's going on yet with uh, that business in the Lukachuka area. We got some fourth-hand story about a cave of Navajo wolves somewhere back in the West Slope Canyon. The witches are supposed to be coming around the summer hogans up there, abusing the animals and the usual. And as usual, the stories vary depending on which rumor you hear. Well, what's your interest in all this, Joe? 
It might have something to do with a man we're looking for up there. Or maybe it's a genuine witch who really does turn himself into a werewolf. <laughs> Wouldn't that knock hell out of you scientific types? <laughs> <laughs> but who are you looking for up there, Joe? Well, read it for yourself. Lewis Horseman, age 22, son of Annie Horseman of the Red Forehead Clan. Married to Elsie Tso of the Many Goats Clan. Residence, Sabita Wash. 27 miles south of Clegtoe. Arrest record. Drunk and disorderly. Assault and battery. Driving under the influence. Well, what's this about a knifing? Harshman cut up a Mexican in Gallup last month, stole a car, and headed for the hills. Well, how can you find him up there? He could stay hidden forever. I'm going out to Shoemakers and spread the word that the Mexican didn't die, that he's alive. The news will get to Harshman, believe me. You coming? Now? Oh, uh, Sure. It was about a two-hour drive to Shoemaker's, a trading post that had just about everything, food, supplies, clothing. It was also the only post office in that area of the reservation. I spent most of the afternoon sitting in a canvas chair near the door, talking to the few people who came in about any recent witchcraft stories they might have heard. The only name that came up more than once was that of Old Woman Grey Rocks. It seems she was the source of one of the better rumors. I jotted down her name in my notebook for future reference. Joe Leaphorn was quite thorough in doing what he'd set out to do, spreading the word. He had repeated the same information over and over, and now he was telling it to the big bareheaded Navajo who was collecting canned goods off the shelves. He's sort of skinny, about 22 years old, and he wears his hair the old way. Name of Lewis Horseman. I don't know him. The big Navajo gave Joe a long look and then moved to the clothing racks and tried on a black felt hat with a wide brim. It was way too small and it sat perched atop his head. He wore his hair in braids, but very short braids, like he'd had a Bellicotti haircut and was letting it grow out. He turned back to Joe and then to me with a big grin showing a, a mouthful of long teeth in need of cleaning. <laughs> My head got big since uh, the last time I bought a hat. He got the last one stolen. The man was big, bigger than most Navajos from this part of the reservation. I was sure Joe noticed this too, and he followed him over to the checkout counter. The big Navajo paid for his groceries and a new larger hat, then drew from his hip pocket a silver conjo band that glistened in the store's filtered light. This horseman fellow cut up a Mexican over in Gallup, got drunk and did it, but the Nakai didn't die. He's getting better now. They want to talk to Harshman about it over at Window Rock. I don't know anything about him. He's the son of Annie Harshman. Used to live over in the west slope of the Lukachukas. Whereabouts on the west slope? Lord and order know where he is? General idea, but it would be better if he came in himself. You know, otherwise we'll have to go and get him. Make it worse for everybody. Hmm, Horseman, huh? Does he, uh, come? Let's see. What'd you say this kid looks like? Slender, hat on denims, and a red sweatband. Hmm. Be better if he came in. We got back to Window Rock in the house in time for a late supper. I thanked Joe and his wife for their hospitality and told them tomorrow I'd be meeting my colleague, Dr. Canfield, and the two of us were going to set up camp over in Many Ruins Canyon. Emma was tired, so she wished me luck and went off to bed. Good night, Emma. I'll be right in. You look beat, Bergen. Well, it's been a long day, and I don't have much to show for it. Well, be patient, my friend. 
You will see our efforts were not a waste of time. Well, I didn't say it was a waste of time, Joe. By morning, Lewis Horseman will know he is not a murderer. Wow. Nobody you talked to knew him. More than one knew him, or knew of him. Like that joker who bought himself the new hat. Oh, he said he didn't. He also said somebody stole his hat. Of course, he could have been lying. Why would that man lie about somebody stealing his hat? If he wasn't lying, who would steal an old felt hat and leave that fancy silver hat band behind? There was a brief rainstorm that night. It kept me up for a while. That and what Joe had said about the silver hat band. The next morning, I again accompanied Joe to his office. We both spent the greater part of two hours sorting through paperwork. Joe updating the entire file of unsolved misdemeanors while I sifted through volumes of witchcraft reports. Law and order, Leaphorn. When did he come in? What? Donato? How the devil did he get down there? You think so, huh? All right. I'll be there as soon as I can. Horseman? Better forget lunch. It's Horseman, all right. He's dead. It was 45 minutes to Ganado. Joe was strangely silent throughout the drive. Every so often he'd shake his head. What is it, Joe? It doesn't figure, Berg. The preliminary report listed cause of death as alcohol poisoning. Well, he could have got hold of a bad bottle. Could be. We were looking for someone up in the hills making rot gut with his own still a few years back. We never found him. But what's really bugging me is where they found Horseman's body. I was sure he'd be up in the Lucachucas. Donato's nowhere near there. Well, he might have got word and was coming in. No, wrong direction. I was so sure. Well, don't feel too bad, Joe. You're 35 years old and you just made your first mistake. The late morning sun was hot by the time we arrived at the edge of Ganado's Tishaw Wash. The coroner, Rudolph Bitsy, a short, chubby, middle-aged man, was waiting for us in the shade. Find anything interesting? Haven't looked at him yet. Officer Roan Horse went back to town with the man who found the body. Thing of Begay. This the bottle? It must be. Nothing been touched. Begay was pretty upset. Says an owl flew right in front of his truck just before he found the body. Death Holman. Ghosts. Well, like I said, he was pretty upset. Well, let's get to it. Whose blanket? Begay's. Uh, says he don't want it back. Well, here goes. Oh, my God. Bitsy closed his eyes. Looks like he had some sort of seizure. No tracks at all? Just from Begay and Roan Horse, and the tire marks from Begay's pickup. The body must have been here before last night's rain, then. Joe, where are you going? Come over here. What is it, Joe? Bitsy, did you pull a limb off this juniper for anything? No. There it is. Mm, broken needles, mud on the tips. It looks like a broom. Does, doesn't it? Let's take another look at the body. Now, notice how the legs are stretched out straight? It could have pushed him out that way after he fell down. 
But if you'd do that while you're lying on the ground, it would push your pants cuffs away from your ankles. Well, you think he was dead and somebody put him there? Maybe. And whoever did it didn't know it was going to rain, so they brushed out their tracks with this branch. Well, why move him here by the road? I mean, in plain sight. Unless... Unless somebody wanted us to find him. Canfield's camper was parked outside when we arrived back at Joe's office. He was waiting for us inside. Trick or treat. Hello, Jeremy. I'd like to have you meet Joe Leaphorn. Joe, it's a pleasure. I've heard a lot about you. Joe, this is Dr. Jeremy Canfield. Doctor? Well, Berg, when do we start? <laughs> I think Joe's got work to do, so why don't we leave now? Fine with me? Joe, look, I'll, uh, I'll be in touch, huh? We'll be out in Many Ruins Canyon if you want to find me for any reason. I drove the truck, and Jeremy followed with a camper. The afternoon sun shone brightly as we descended the dirt road into the upper canyon. As we dropped deeper into the ravine, the light grew progressively less intense. The cliffs closed in, rising in sheer, almost smooth walls, nearly 400 feet to a narrow slit of sky above. We found a likely camp, a small grotto, with enough soil to support an expanse of grass and even a growth of young cottonwoods and willows. We set up the tent and settled in. There. That's about it. Well, I should hope so. Was there anything at Shoemakers that you didn't buy? As a matter of fact, there was. This letter. Well, what letter? From Ellen Leone. It was sent from Page, Arizona. She's checking the trading posts around Mormon Ridge, and if she doesn't find her man, she'll be here in a day or so. I left her a note at Shoemakers with a map showing her how to get here. Well, let's hope she doesn't need it. Well, I hope she does. You know, not every woman in the world is like Sarah... Sorry, Berg, I shouldn't have said that. You feel like going for a drive? Uh, no, no I, I'm really, really bushed. I've been driving all day. Well, I'll be back in a few hours. I gotta see someone about a witch. I found old woman Gray Rocks in her summer hogan in the Lukachuka foothills. She was a squat, wrinkled woman, but ageless. I guessed she was anywhere between 60 to 100 years old. She told me a man named Ben Yazi's sheep had been knifed to death by a wolf. Oh, too much knife play going on. I have a cousin who has a nephew who stabbed a Nike over in Gallup. Yeah, I heard something about that. I can't remember his name. Did the Nike die? Oh, they say he got well. The boy should come in and talk to law and order. He'd better if he did. Well, how's he going to know? I heard one of the boys in the Nez outfit went back up into Lukachuka country and told him about it. Do you know which boy? Funny you asked me that. A man up on the ridge asked my sister's husband the same thing. The man was Bill Akani, like you. Really? When? I mean, was he driving a green van? Well, it, uh, it was like a truck... They used for delivering bread with a door in back and a trailer. That was um, three, four weeks ago. I don't know what color. It was dark by the time I got back to camp and I was tired and hungry, having not eaten since morning. Jeremy had a half-eaten can of stew waiting on the portable stove. After supper, we each crawled into our sleeping bags and... In silent darkness, watch the moonlight the top of the canyon walls. What was that? <laughs> it's a coyote, a 
Or she put his lost dog, maybe. Could be one of my witches turned into a wolf for the evening. I say it's a witch, because this frog rock of yours keeps me safe from witches. I smiled at myself in the dark. What I'd given Jeremy wasn't really a Navajo charm at all. It was a much older and a sazi fertility token with nothing at all to do with witches. Of course, it didn't really matter. Wolves, witchcraft, superstition, and the look on the face of Lewis Horseman. Little did I suspect they were all connected or what terror was all about. this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Blessing Way. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Tony Hilleman's The Blessing Way was adapted for radio by Kim Weisskopf. Ed Nelson is McKee. Barbara Anderson is Ellen. And Ty Andrews is the Navajo. Featured in the cast are Richard Deacon as Canfield, Norman Alden as Joe, Jim Bowles as Bitsy, and Noreen Gamble as Old Woman Greyrocks. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes... And listen here to the Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Tony Hillerman's haunting tour of terror. The Blessing Way. Starring Ed Nelson, Barbara Anderson, 
and tag antlers. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. witchcraft and superstition. In a way, a wolf is the devil. There have been reports of wolf sightings on the Navajo Reservation. These are of particular significance to Dr. Bergen McKee, Ph.D. He's authored several books on the subject, and he has come to the reservation in northeastern Arizona to continue his research for a new textbook. He's brought with him a colleague, Dr. Jeremy Canfield, and he has enlisted the assistance of Joe Leaphorn, a full-blooded Navajo, an officer in the Law and Order Division, and an old friend of Dr. McKee's. Joe Leaphorn, a man who is good at his job, is not satisfied with the diagnosis that a local Navajo, Louis Horseman, died of alcohol poisoning. The evidence dictates otherwise. But Dr. Bergen McKee, a scientist in his own way, can accept the fact that the man is dead and leave it at that. Little does he suspect what terror lurks in the night to come. The Blessing Way will continue in a moment. I left the campsite before dawn. Called Joe Leaphorn from the gas station on the highway at Chinley and explained what I'd learned from the old woman Gray Rocks. Then ate a leisurely breakfast at Bishbito's Diner while waiting for Joe to arrive. I looked up from the grounds of my third cup of coffee and saw him come in. Uh, thanks for the call, Bergen. You uh, saved me a lot of legwork. Hey, sit down, Joe. You want coffee? No, no thanks, but I will sit down. Leave it to a white man to get through to an old Navajo woman. <laughs> I just have a way with women, Joe. Old women. They can't hurt me. I got something else you might be interested in copy of the autopsy report. Can I see it? Here, take a look. Then let's go find that boy who went to Warren Horseman. Subject, Lewis Horseman. War name unknown. Age 22, address. Read further down. Estimated time of death between 6 p.m. and midnight. Cause of death? Suffocation. Substantial accumulation of fine granular material in the lung tissues. Windpipe, throat, and nostrils. Fine, granular material? We call it sand. Sand? In his lungs? And not enough alcohol in his bloodstream to fill a shot glass. The medical examiner said it looked like he got caught in a cave-in, like he'd been buried in sand, buried alive. Hmm, you think so? And somebody dug him out and laid him out there on the road with a bottle of whiskey he hadn't drunk? Not likely. There wasn't any sand in his cuffs or in his pockets or anywhere else. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense anyway. I think I know a lot about witches. You think you know a lot about witches. How do you kill a witch? What do you mean? Do you smother them? Remember that case over in Fruitland? That guy whose daughter died of TB? He shot four of them. Mm -hmm. And then over in Tignos Pass a couple of years ago, one was beaten to death. You think somebody thought Horseman was a witch? Makes a certain amount of sense. But I don't know. Hey, Joe, you're looking out the window like... Are you all right? Why kill somebody like Horseman? Just another poor soul who didn't quite know how to be a Navajo and couldn't learn to act white. No good for anything. 
That Fruitland case was mine. I heard that Navajo wolf talk, and I let it slide. So we had five bodies to bury. Four. No, it was five. The guy shot an old hand trembler and his wife and a school teacher and her husband. Then he thought about it, and he blew his brains out. What are you trying to do, figure out a way to blame yourself for Horseman? I could have gone in and looked for him. Let's go find that Nez boy. There are family Hogans aren't far from Shoemaker's. You ready? You know, Joe, you're still as stubborn as you were six years ago. Some things never change. You're right. Like the coffee in this diner, it's still the world's worst. We took Joe's carry-all and went to find someone named Nez. Someone who might have been the last person to see Lewis Horseman alive. I waited in the truck while Joe went in. Sometimes a uniform helps when you've got questions to ask. Joe returned with an odd expression on his face. Well? I found out a little. Kid's name is Billy. Billy Nez, huh? Did you talk to him? Wasn't there. I spoke to his uncle. Says the kid took a horse this morning back up into the mountains. <laughs> Does that mean anything? Probably not. The uncle says he does it all the time. Whenever there's work to be done. But he did say Billy knew where Horseman was hiding and went up to tell him like I figured. And? Didn't find him. At least that's what Billy told his uncle. Think he was lying? I'm sure it's the truth. The uncle told me something else. Billy Nez is Horseman's younger brother. On the drive back to Chinle, Joe explained how that could be. The family broke up and Billy moved in with his uncle, so he used his uncle's name. The only name that really counts anyway is a war name, and that's a family secret. It's only used in ceremonials like a blessing way. Joe wanted to find a man named Sam George Takes, a law and order sergeant operating out of the Chinley sub-agency. Takes was out to lunch at Bishbito's Diner. He was a big, heavy man. To call him husky would be an understatement. He was digging into a hot lunch when we found him. Summer, fool's out. He's probably off chasing some girl. No telling when he'll be back. Well, that's right. That's what you do. Hang around some girl's Hogan. Or if your brother is missing, maybe you'll look for your brother. And he don't find him and comes home and his uncle sends him in here like he said he would. We find out whatever he knows, which is probably nothing. And that's the end of it. Why are you worrying? Because you know how news travels around here. It could be by now the boy knows his brother is dead. So maybe he connects it with this witching gossip. Then he collects some cousins and uncles and goes looking for the wolf. Oh, maybe. Neither of you boys don't eat. Your chip beef ain't bad. But this is your territory, Sam George. Where would you start looking? Oh, hell, Joe. He could be anywhere. You remember that bootlegger? We looked four years for him. We never found nothing. What about that rocket the military lost three or four years ago? They ever find it? I don't know. I don't think they ever did. It was a $10,000 reward. Be right back. I've got a phone call to make. Boy, you can't beat this place for a hot meal. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You gonna have something? No, uh, I already ate. Uh, look, what's this about a lost rocket? Oh, they shoot him off over at the Tonopah site, clear over to White Sands, New Mexico, right over the reservation. Used to lose one now and then, but they got a radar station now over at Tall Poles Butte, track them all the way to the ground. Yeah, that's science for you. Yeah. Hey, you're a scientist, aren't you? 
<laughs> Not the same thing. I'm an anthropologist. Oh, yeah. Old bones and stuff like that, right? Well, it's close. Uh, by the way, you, you wouldn't happen to know where a man called Ben Yazzie has been keeping his submahogan, would you? Yazzie, Yazzie. Oh, sure. He used to graze some sheep way up on the high slopes over between Horsefell and many ruins canyons. Nice fellow. Ah. How about a cup of coffee? <laughs> Come on, it won't kill you. Well, there went our motive. Colonel Stump said the reward expired two years ago. They never found it, and they hope it stays lost. The bird's obsolete. Be embarrassing if it turned up now after everyone's forgotten about hey, it. Hey, I have a theory. What if somebody else was hiding out back there and just didn't want the Navajo police coming in with a search party? I thought of that, too. Harsman was killed between 6 and midnight the same day I told everyone at Shoemakers we were going in after him if he didn't come out. So? So it figures, if your theory's correct, I'm the one who got him killed. There was nothing I could do to console Joe Leaphorn. He was the most pig-headed man I ever met. Maybe that's why he's good at what he does. I decided to leave the business of murder to Joe and carry on about my own business, witchcraft and superstition. I stopped back at camp to see if Jeremy was around, but he was gone. From there, I went off to find Ben Yazi. It was really beautiful country, a bonanza to the artist's eye. Exciting frontier still untouched by what we city folks call civilization. The white man looks at it and calls it a desert. The Navajo name for it means beautiful valley. I drove past several small grassy meadows on my way to the upper slopes. Some were barren, having been heavily grazed by sheep. But most of them were green and full. Ben Yazi must have been terribly frightened of something to move his flock to higher country. I honked a horn when I crossed the final eroded ridge and saw Ben Yazi's hogan on the slope below. Merely a gesture of courtesy. Official notice that a visitor was coming. consisted of two octagonal hogans of unpeeled ponderosa logs, a small plank storage shack, and two brush arbors, all built in a cluster of cedar at the edge of a small arroyo. No cooking pots hung under the brush shelter, no clothing hung out in the air, no overt sign that anyone was living there at all. Hello? Hello? Ben Yazi? Anyone here? I sat on the running board of the truck and leaned back against the door. It was easy to see why Ben Yazi had built his Ogan here. Steep sandstone cliffs rising abruptly on two sides afforded the Hogan shelter from the southwest winds and shade from the late afternoon sun. I studied the cliffs... 200 feet of sheer, smooth, reddish stone with streaks of dark discoloration from seepage and then a softer layer of gray pocked and carved with blowholes and caves. 
To the north and east was an expanse of colossal erosion dominated by another towering flat-topped butte. There was no grass in sight and, and no sheep. I wondered where Benyazi kept his flock. Surely it must have been nearby. Then it came to me, borne on the sudden light breeze that fanned up the arroyo past the Hogans. I recognized it instantly. The foul odor of death and decaying flesh. I hadn't noticed it before by the Hogans. It had to be coming from somewhere else. I walked slowly down the slope. I listened. Coming from somewhere beyond the ridge, I, I heard something. I was certain. Faint, but something. I hiked up the ridge, stopping to listen every few paces. But all I could hear was my own shortness of breath and the internal thumping of my jittery heart pounding in my chest. Finally, I, I reached the top and... I dropped suddenly in the ground as a cloud of giant black scavenger birds erupted from everywhere. Ravens! So that's what I heard. I lay there on my belly and looked down into the arroyo. And I saw why, why the, the stench, why the ravens, and why Ben Yazi was gone. There were two sheep pens built of cedar poles in a semicircle with the Arroyo Bank furnishing one wall. One pen was empty. In the other were five large rams, hooves pointing to the sky, with horrible, gaping holes in their bloody throats. <laughs> After the initial shock of my discovery abated, I, I settled on a simple explanation. The rams had been killed by coyotes or dogs or even perhaps a wolf, but a four-legged one. I knew coyotes were active in the area this time of year. Old woman Greyrocks wouldn't tell me who had seen the witch. It must have been Benyazi. And after all, a witch is more than a man can be expected to cope with. I'd go to Shoemaker's in the near future and inquire as to Ben Yazi's current whereabouts. His story would undoubtedly support my scapegoat theory. Though I had quite a scare, I was suddenly optimistic. It was nearly dusk by the time I reached the hard-packed floor of Many Ruins Canyon. The clouds overhead were active, and the threat of rain hung in the air. The breeze was cool and carried on at the fragrance of wet pine. Life in the rugged outdoors was agreeing with me. And yet I, I felt exhausted from my afternoon's outing. I had no complaints, however. Quite the contrary. I, I was beginning to feel exhilarated by what had begun as a reluctant decision to come back to the reservation after six long, lonely years of self-pity and solitude. My self-satisfaction was short-lived, however... Just as I turned the truck up the slope to the campsite, it dawned on me. It couldn't have been a coyote that killed those five rams. The cedar poles around the pen had to be at least six feet high. 
I remembered the length of the shadows and the time of day. Ben Yazi had to have built the corral with coyotes or wolves in mind and designed it to keep them out. No animal could jump a six-foot fence. Damn. How could I be so careless, so stupid? I switched off the ignition and sat silently for a moment, utterly disgusted with myself. I'd have to go back to Ben Yazi's Hogan's and find out exactly how the coyotes had gotten in. A storm was brewing as darkness settled into the canyon. I looked around and realized that Jeremy's camper was still gone. It didn't really surprise me, I suppose. Once Dr. Canfield finds himself some ruins to poke around in, nothing short of a hurricane would catch his attention. Jeremy, where the devil have you gone? The portable butane stove was unlit. I touched it. It was cold. And it was his turn to cook, too. Good old reliable Dr. Canfield. Though I didn't know why, I was worried about him. It didn't figure he'd be putting around old ruins by moonlight. And the campsite appeared undisturbed, like he'd left after I did in the morning and hadn't come back at all. He might have left me a note. Well, I kept a flashlight in the glove compartment of the truck. I saw the tread marks from the camper tires. Then back closer to camp, illuminated by the flashlight beam, I could see the mess kit, pots and pans, a canteen, first aid items. left me a note if he had. I wondered who inside the tent. My light attracted the night flyer's bugs, darted frantically through the shaft of light, thumping off the glass and casting magnified shadows everywhere. It was spooky. Both bedrolls were rolled up. No preparations had been made for sleep. I was convinced that Jeremy had not been back since morning. I looked on the ground... I looked everywhere. And then, then I tilted the flashlight so the beam exposed the folding table we'd set up the night before. That's when I saw it. A sheet of white typing paper weighed down by the turquoise stone that Canfield had jokingly called a frog. His charm against witches. I read the note carefully, beginning with the letterhead. From the desk of Dr. J.R. Canfield. Bergen. A Navajo dragged himself up here with a Leg all swollen up with snake bite. I'm taking him to Tignos Pass. Be back tomorrow, John. John. Why, John? I read the note again and stared, squinting at the signature. Was this another of Canfield's little games? A joke? Or was it something very different? Something urgent? Had he issued a warning of some kind by signing his name John instead of Jeremy? A tremendous bolt of lightning suddenly crashed through the canyon. And just as suddenly the sky opened up, the rain came spattering down in big, cold, high-velocity drops, sending me scurrying to the tent for shelter. The rain stopped just as abruptly as it began. 
It had been little more than a heavy sprinkle, but elsewhere on the mesa, it had been a genuine summer storm. I put away my notes for the night and got ready for bed. But I, I couldn't sleep. My mind was a day ahead of me. In the morning, I'd drive back to the upper slopes to inspect Ben Yazi's sheep pens and perhaps drop into Tiknos Pass and see if Jeremy was indeed on a mission of mercy, as the letter said. Then I, I remembered our visitor. Chances were, Ellen Leon would be showing up in the morning in search of a missing engineer. Just what I didn't need. A woman to make demands on my precious time. Finally, I began to drift off on the precarious margin of sleep. I bolted upright in bed, wide awake, and strained to listen. My mouth was dry and filled with a primitive taste of fear. I slid out of bed, quietly climbed into my clothes, drew back the tent flap. In a crouched position, I could see the moon had risen halfway up the sky, and the west wall of the canyon was flooded with pale light. It came screeching out of the darkness out of nowhere, all eyes, wings, and a jagged talons. It strafed my tent and then flew off, but I had seen it, the wet owl. In Navajo folklore, the wet owl symbolizes the ghost. The ghost of someone who has met, or was about to meet, violent and sudden death. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Blessing Way. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Tony Hilleman's The Blessing Way was adapted for radio by Kim Weisskopf. Ed Nelson is McKee. Barbara Anderson is Ellen. And Ty Andrews is the Navajo. Featured in the cast are Norman Alden as Joe and Marvin Miller as Takes. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer, Rochelle Sherman, associate producer, and Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes. And listen here to the Zero Hour.
the Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Tony Hillerman's haunting tour of terror. The Blessing Way. Starring Ed Nelson. Barbara Anderson. And Tig Andrews. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Dr. Bergen McKee, anthropology professor, had been busy doing his homework. An old Navajo woman had told him stories about wolves and witches. Though as a scientist, he needed documentation. So he set out to prove his theory, that superstition arises from fear. In short, witchcraft is a scapegoat for those who cannot explain away their woes rationally. Dr. Bergen McKee went to an abandoned grazing grounds and came across five dead rams... Their throats slashed. Coyotes, he conjectured. But how could a relatively small animal scale a six-foot fence? And where was his colleague, Dr. Kenfield? Why hadn't he returned to camp? And why was there a letter from him signed John when his name was Jeremy? Dr. Bergen McKee has several questions for which there are no scientific answers. And he has a fear. Irrational, perhaps, but real nonetheless. He's beginning to get the feeling that something is wrong in Many Ruins Canyon. Something dreadfully wrong. The Blessing Way resumes following this word. The wet owl had flown so close to my face that I needed all my powers of self-control not to cry out. Something out there had frightened that bird, and owls are not easily frightened... I studied the worn outcroppings of sandstone across the canyon, straining to hear. I felt like a young child, afraid of the dark, the unknown. An irrational fear, I thought, but perhaps not. I could think of nothing that had happened to this point that made any sense. One dead man with sand in his lungs, five dead rams with their throats slashed, and a wrong name signed to a simple note. So why be logical now? I moved cautiously away from the tent, back into the darkness, climbing slowly over small boulders, carefully skirting larger ones, until I reached a pocket of water-cut rock directly under the oak of a hanging cliff. The light of the climbing moon had moved halfway across the canyon floor. Nothing stirred. 
What I scanned was a quarry of immense, motionless, brooding quiet. Then I caught a motion. I stared until my eyes were burning. A sinister shape, half hidden by juniper. A boulder? No. A head. A dog's head. And it was moving again, inching slowly out of the shadows into the moonlight. First a muzzle, then the head, its ears upright, the mouth hanging unnaturally open. I rubbed my eyes to be sure. It was definitely a dog's head, though unusually high, unless he were perched atop a ledge. Suddenly there was motion again, and the dog became a man, a large man with a wolf skin over his shoulders, the empty skull atop his own head. He dipped into the moonlight for a split second and then disappeared in the shadows. Was it a man, or was it really a wolf? No, it was most assuredly a man running swiftly toward the campsite. He held something in his right hand, something metal that reflected the moonlight. A long barrel and an ammunition clip, a machine gun. It was a man in wolf's clothing stalking what he assumed to be a slumbering sheep. He was stalking me. Then he was gone. Out of sight behind the tent, somehow. I felt safer. If I couldn't see him reasoning, he couldn't see me. But that wouldn't necessarily be true. Sound, or rather no sound. Silence was my only ally. What's he doing now? He was in plain sight, no longer making any effort at concealment, fooling with my truck. I was suddenly struck by the wild hope that he would just jump in and drive off nothing more than a common thief. But no, he was going nowhere, nor was I. It was obvious the man had in some way disabled the truck. My only means of escape now was my own two feet. I touched the sandstone walls of the pocket I had chosen as shelter. They were smooth and steep. If I could only wiggle my way up through the crevice. But how could I manage that without making a noise? The man, or wolf, whatever he was, had gone into the tent. I could see a flashlight beam through the canvas. He'll see my notes. He'll know who I am, if he doesn't know already. Should I make a run for it now? Just take off across the canyon floor and hope to dodge a hail of machine gun bullets. Silly thought. There wasn't time to act. He was outside the tent again. No more than 50 yards away and facing this direction, looking at precisely the spot in which I stood. Had he heard me breathing? Could he see me? Dr. McKee? Bergen McKee? I need to talk to you about Dr. Canfield. John's hurt. He needs help. The man's words repeated themselves, ricocheting off the canyon walls, driving home all of my worst fears. He referred to Dr. Canfield as John. He called me by name so he knew who I was. But who was he? All I knew was the man standing there in the darkness, this man in the wolf skin brandishing a machine gun, this man who had stalked me like an animal had come for one reason and one reason only, to kill me. <clears throat> 
Suddenly, the man ran across the canyon bottom, the wolfskin dangling from one hand. But I knew I was far from being out of danger. The man would surely climb to higher ground in order to improve his vantage point. From up high, he'd be able to see the entire canyon and me. Now was my chance. While he was moving, so could I. I worked my way steadily down the canyon, keeping close to the sheer sandstone wall. Finally, I reached the bottom where dense brush grew in massive clumps from the muddy soil. I found a, a small opening underneath one bush and squeezed in silently. Then for the first time in hours, I shut my eyes. I could hear him moving along the rim on the opposite side of the canyon. Somewhere up there among the stars, he was watching, probably through his gun sight, waiting for me to move. For the time being, I was safe. The great Dr. McKee, cowering beneath the thicket, driven practically out of his mind by someone purporting to be a, a Navajo wolf. Then something interrupted my reverie. What was it? It was the dead silence of the night. I hadn't heard a thing for who knows how long. I had lost touch with time. All I knew was it was dark and the stars were out. Was the man gone? I had waited for what seemed like a full hour. And then moved. I crouched in the shadows, listening... He really was gone. But how far? And why? Then it came to me. If that lunatic had gone to all this trouble to learn who was living in the tent, he would also know of Ellen Leon. The letter announcing her impending arrival was on the table. The wolf. Oh, the wolf. He would only have to wait for her. Well, I'd have to do the same. I decided the hell was self-preservation in the sedentary academic life. If I was going to get killed, I might as well do it in style. I no longer had the faintest hope that the morning would bring Jeremy Canfield driving up the canyon, but it would bring Ellen Leon. I took one deep breath, let it out slowly, then sprinted across the sand to the south wall. I had to get as far and as high as I could and find a place where I could watch the floor of the canyon. I'd wait there to intercept the car and Helen Leon. I was making good progress, having scaled a third of the way up the south wall. There was a, a large boulder up ahead surrounded by enough sandstone to afford me a blind. It would be a perfect viewpoint. Only it was so dark I, I could barely see my way. It must have been nearly dawn, the darkest time of the day or night. The moon was down, and now the only light of all was from the distant stars. Now, there was only five feet away, but there was a, a gap, five feet of space I'd have to get across. It couldn't have been more than a ten-foot drop. I could see the stars reflected in a, a puddle of collected rainwater on the rocks below. I, I reached out and felt the rough bark of a, a tree limb. I held on to it with both hands and... I had fallen flush on my face, but 
and got with one hand down to break my fall. I scrambled to my feet. I was out in the open. And suddenly there was a roaring in my ears and a screaming pain in my hand. The lights went out. The sounds inside my head were gone, but not the searing pain in my right hand. I looked at it and saw that the little finger was bent grotesquely backward. The complete dislocation. Then I realized what had happened and where I was and what was at stake. The dawn had arrived. Ellen Leon would soon appear, and that madman was up there somewhere. I tried to pull my finger back into place, but the pain was too much. I rolled over and looked at my reflection in the pool of trapped rainwater. I looked to sight. The skin had been scraped from the right side of my cheek when I fell. In two days' growth of beard had sprouted, and my hair was caked with mud. With my left hand, I tried to wash the dirt and dried blood from my face. I was moderately successful, but nevertheless, Ellen Leon would be confronted by a grubby man with a torn and dirty shirt, hardly an appearance to inspire confidence. Oh, that finger. I'd have to hide it from her, because what I had to say to her, improbable as it would seem, was the truth. There was an insane man dressed like a werewolf somewhere in the canyon, and he meant to kill us both. Then I heard it. A car was coming. From the echoes, I knew it was already in the canyon. Maybe it wasn't Helen Leon at all. Maybe it was Jeremy. And the whole thing was all just a bad joke. Maybe it was the wolf coming back to finish me off. Then I saw it rounding the bend. A Volkswagen. And behind the wheel, I could see the driver was wearing a hurried expression. It was Helen Leon. <laughs> As soon as I saw it was Ellen Leon, I dashed out onto the road. Miss Leon! Miss Leon! Miss Leon, stop! Miss Leon, unlock the door. I'm Burton McKee. I was supposed to meet you here, Dr. Canfield and I. You have to let me in. Turn the car around. Headed out of here. What's wrong? Where's Dr. Canfield? Look, I'm not a, sure exactly what's wrong, but I want you to get out of this canyon until I find out. There's a man somewhere up this canyon who isn't acting rationally. I think he may have done something to Dr. Canfield. I don't know where the hell Canfield is, and I can't start looking for him until I get you out of here. Oh. Canfield was gone when I got back to camp yesterday. He left me a note, and he signed it, John. His name is Jeremy. What did the note say? Oh, something about taking a Navajo to Tignos Pass. Something about a snake bite. Look, that's not the point, Miss Leon. He signed it, John. Well, maybe he was just playing a joke. It was some joke. During the night, I saw a man sneaking up on our tent. He had a wolfskin over his head. Really? Is that how you got that awful bruise? Did he hit you? No, I, I fell on a rock. Oh, of course. Look, I, I know you must think I'm some kind of a madman, Miss Leon, but... What happened to your hand? 
Okay. I didn't want to alarm you. It happened when... Wait, listen. Now, you wait here. Come back! Miss Leon? Sounds like a motor. What is it, a truck? Look, I'm going to find out. All right. We'll both find out. This woman, Helen Leon, had a certain Girl Scout quality about her. Delicate and yet determined. I was sure she doubted my story, but I'd expected that. Somehow, I'd have to stress the urgency of the situation without giving her further cause for alarm. It was less than 50 yards to the bend of the canyon. My hand throbbed violently every step of the way. When we reached the bend, I, I cautioned her to stay back. I peeked around the rocky point. There was a gray Land Rover parked a ways down the canyon. It, a cable from the winch reel on its front bumper was attached to a fallen ponderosa pine. The massive trunk of the long-dead tree was being swung slowly across the canyon. What is it, Dr. McKeith? Yeah. It looks like we walk out. What in the world is he doing? He's blocking us in with that tree. Is that the man you saw last night? The man with a wolf skin? Yes. With all the racket the winch motor was making, the man couldn't hear us walk back to Ellen's car, started up and back off. At least she hadn't asked me how I knew that this was the same man. I don't know what lie I'd have made up. I couldn't have told her that I'd seen a long machine gun barrel sticking out of the Land Rover window, nor could I divulge the fact that I now had a pretty fair idea who the man was. The terrifying truth was I'd met him before, face to face. It was the hat that gave him away. The man operating the winch was wearing one. A black felt hat with a wide brim, with a silver concho band around the crown. It was the big Navajo from Shoemakers. Is your hand broken? No, no, I sprained my finger. But it hurts a lot. It's all right. It would feel better if you'd let me bandage it. Don't you have a first aid kit at your campsite? Look, I think it'd be better if we kept going. I want to find a place where we can climb out of here. Maybe Dr. Canfield's back by now. Maybe. Can't we just... All right. It's just up ahead. We'll need a few things anyway. Stop at the camp. Thank you. Don't mention it. Canfield wasn't there. I hadn't expected him to be, but she had. She sat glumly in the tent while I rounded up supplies. Harley, I, I filled my canteen, shoved two cans of meat into my pocket, grabbed a box of crackers in my pocket knife, then I trotted over to where my truck was and raised the hood. I could feel her watching me from behind, but I didn't turn around. Instead, I examined the engine. Those spark plug wires were ripped out. Dr. McKee, really, shouldn't we have waited back there just for a little while? I'm sure Dr. Canfield will be coming right back. And if he doesn't, I'm sure this man will help us. This is absolutely insane. I'm turning the car around. What are you doing? Take your foot off of mine. You'll get us killed. Now, get this straight. I had a hard day yesterday. I was up all night. I'm tired. My hands hurt. And I'm worried about Jeremy. Now, you're going to behave and do as you're told. And I'm telling you again, we're going to climb out of this canyon. Look, if I'm wrong about that guy, I'll apologize. I can't take that chance now. Please. You have to trust me, Miss Leon. Better slow down. The road's getting too narrow. Here. 
Pull it. Wait, I saw something. What is it? Tire tracks, you see? Along the bank there. Somebody's been here. Dr. Canfield? I need to find out. Put the car over there. Now get it past the brush. Out of sight. Then what? Wait in the car. I'll be back for you. Dr. McKee. Huh? Never mind. I'll do as you say. The tire tracks told me a lot. They were obliterated along the road, but visible on the bank. That meant whoever made them had done so before last night's rain. There was only one set, and from the angle of the flattened brush, I assumed that whatever went in, it hadn't come out. At least not this way. The road stopped completely, but the deep tread marks went on. Over rocks, through the brush, and until... I could see where they were heading. There was a, a brush-covered outcropping of rock 50 feet away. Quietly, I approached. My heart was racing. It could be a trap set by the big Navajo. Slowly, very slowly, I peeked around. And saw a, a truck. Jeremy Canfield's camper. It was locked up tight, and the muddy streaks on the windshield suggested it hadn't been moved for a while. But I looked in through a side window. No keys in the ignition. No Jeremy either. I wheeled around and saw up on the rim rock a flash of red. I stood frozen, looking at an Indian boy, wearing a bright red baseball cap, sitting atop a chestnut-colored horse. The boy had a rifle in one hand. It was pointed up at the sky. We stared at each other. Neither of us moved a muscle. And then he rode off. It was like a hallucination. He quite literally disappeared. The camper compartment was locked. I found a rock and... broke out the glass, reached through with my good hand, and undid the latch. The tailgate dropped open and outslid a pair of familiar boots. Jeremy Canfield's. He was still in them. I reached in and rolled him over. <gasps> the great roaring in my ears returned as I stumbled back. I had seen the face of Jeremy Canfield, the bulging eyes ablaze with terror, the mouth wide open, shouting out a silent scream and rimmed with sand. <laughs> Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Blessing Way. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Tony Hilleman's The Blessing Way was adapted for radio by Kim Weisskopf. Ed Nelson is McKee. Barbara Anderson is Ellen. And Ty Andrews is the Navajo. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer, and Kim Weisskopf, story editor. 
Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To The Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Tony Hillerman's haunting tour of terror. The Blessing Way. Starring Ed Nelson. Barbara Anderson. And Tig Antlers. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Sometimes a challenge is a good thing. It helps to break up the monotony when one has been doing the same thing over a long period of time. Dr. Bergen McKee is a university professor with tenure, anthro department, and for the past several years satisfied with life behind ivy walls, inside an ivory tower, correcting term papers and smarting from the after-effects of his shattered marriage. Dr. Bergen McKee needed a challenge, and this is precisely what he got. He's faced with the problem of climbing out of a deep canyon, over rugged terrain. The little finger on his right hand has been dislocated. He's been up all night. And he's accompanied by a young woman who accepts nothing he says is truth. But then his story is hard to believe. There's a madman dressed like a werewolf running loose in the canyon. He's burying people alive. And Dr. Bergen McKee must rise to meet the challenge or tumble into infinite darkness... For if he fails, he and the lady will most certainly die. The blessing way will continue. But first... Canfield was dead. Killed, no doubt, in the same fashion as Lewis Horseman had been. 
I raced back to where I'd left Ellen Leon. She was sitting on a rock, holding her ankle. Oh, I'm so clumsy. I told you to wait in the car. What happened? Well, you were gone a long time. I was going to look for you, and I fell. I, I twisted my ankle. It, it hurts. Well, can you walk on it? I don't think so. You may have to go on without me. No. Look, I mean, I can't leave you here. Dr. McKee, I know you're just trying to protect me. I can appreciate that. Let me see that ankle. It doesn't look bad. No swelling. We really ought to take the car back to the camp and wait for Dr. Canfield. We're not going back. I found Canfield's truck. Somebody broke in the back window. He's gone. Now, we've got to climb out now. Please, you're hurting my arm. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Please, Dr. McKee, you've got a concussion. You just can't go stumbling around like this. You don't understand. Hey, Miss Leon, come back. I was too surprised to move for a moment. There was nothing wrong with her ankle. She had run off to the car, rolled up the windows, and locked herself in. I tried to keep my voice at a normal level. Really, Miss Leon, I'm not crazy. And we really do have to get out of here. Roll down the window. Not until you give me your word you'll come back to the camp with me. Don't make me use this rock. Now roll down the window. No! I promise. Let me in and, and we'll go back. No! I mean it, Miss Leon. Now you get out of this car or I'll drag you out. Get out! That's right. Get out. I knew without turning around who it was. He came around the side so I could see him and he could see me. Hold perfectly still. He was a tall man, taller than I'd remembered him from Shoemakers, but the same man. The sun was reflecting off of his silver hatband. In his hand was a gunmetal blue machine pistol. You're Bergen McKee and the young lady would be Ellen Leon. What do you want? Just the pleasure of your company for a while. Right now, I want your boyfriend to take his hand out of his shirt. Very, very slowly. That's it. Well, I say I've been too suspicious. That's quite a finger. Bergen, I'll have to ask you to put your hands against that pinion tree while I see what you have in those pockets. Ellen, you stand over there. You get some keys, your wallet. <laughs> well, meat. Are you planning on getting away? <laughs> Look, you hold that position while I check Ellen. Look, I want no movement at all. Do I make myself clear? Yes. Ellen, you hold your arms out to the side. That's a good girl. Why are you doing this? Ellen, I'm not talking to you, so don't talk to me. If you insist, I'll have to shoot you. All right, the two of you now walk ahead of me and do as you're told, and no one will get hurt. See, I, I carry this gun cocked with a safety off, and I'm very good with it. Now, let's go. He had us hike across a canyon a ways, and then up over dense brush and tumbled boulders. It was a difficult climb. Then, as I grew more tired, my hand hurt worse. Ellen, Girl Scout that she was, made it without need of assistance. I'd like to have seen my former wife do the same. The truth of one of the last things I heard Jeremy Canfield say echoed in my mind. Not all women were like Sarah. Certainly, Ellen Leon wasn't. 
There was a bitter irony to the whole thing. Ellen had come here in search of a missing man. I considered the possibility that he, too, was now permanently missing, with lungs full of sand, and the thought of the same terrible end for her was too much to bear. When we reached the summit, we paused to rest. I had to say something. I'll walk right over there to the truck. But why not let the woman go? She, she's of no use to you. Why, Bergen, how considerate of you. But I'm afraid Ellen must go with us. You see, she's seen me. She won't tell. <laughs> That's funny, Bergen, funny. Really it is. I can think of two people who said that very same thing. I get in the truck. No, no, wait. Let me see that hand first. Uh, you right-handed? Yes. Yeah, I was afraid you would be. If finger looks bad, we may have to soak it to get the swelling down. I'm touched by your sympathy. No, it's, it's not really that. It's just that you're going to have to write a letter for us. What if he refuses? Well, then I'll have to kill you. Both of you. There is no comfortable way to ride in the back seat of a moving vehicle lying face down with one's wrist tied together and roped to one's ankles. Nor could I draw much comfort from the conversation coming from the front seat. So this Dr. Green at Albuquerque knew you were coming to this canyon. Who else knew, Ellen? Yeah, what about your husband? I don't have a husband. Come on, a pretty girl like you, I find that surprising. Life's just full of surprises, isn't it? <laughs> That's right, Ellen. That's right. You know what else surprised me? That Bergen sat around in the canyon and let me cut him off. Why did he do that? Why don't you ask him? I am asking you. Because I was a fool. Didn't you believe there was a Navajo wolf? He had that terrible bruise on his forehead. I thought... Well, <laughs> I would have got him anyway. No. If it hadn't been for me, Dr. McKee would have gotten away. Oh, you don't know about us Navajo wolves. We turn ourselves into coyotes, dogs, bears, foxes, owls. We fly through the air we need to. He outsmarted you last night. You said so yourself. And he outsmarted you again today. Drop it, he... lady. You don't know who I am and nobody gets away. From the big Navajo's questions, it became painfully obvious why Ellen and I were still alive and why he wanted me to write that letter. One depended upon the other. For some reason, he didn't want anyone to come looking for us and find something else. Perhaps Lewis Horseman had accidentally found something. Jeremy Canfield could have, too. I was bobbing in and out of consciousness. I think we stopped once or, or twice and... And then we were stopped. I was sure. There was another voice I hadn't heard before. I see you got a woman, George. Where's the man you were after? He's in the back. Get any calls while I was gone? No calls. They better let us know soon. Oh, well, they'll let us know. They'll let us know. Won't be too long now. You see anything? Just that kid on the horse again, up on the top. Way off across the mesa. I couldn't hit him from here. Get out of the car, Ellen. Come on, come on, will you? I'm in a hurry. 
I could feel the big Navajo untying the ropes that bound me. The other man had called him George. So now I knew his name, but I still had no idea what he wanted. When I stood up, I saw we were in a narrow side canyon. A few hundred yards above us was a series of ancient cliff dwellings built high on the canyon wall. But then the world started spinning again. I, I started to fall, but someone caught me and propped me up against the side of the Land Rover. You know, Bergen's going to write that letter for us, Eddie. He hasn't written it yet? Oh, no, he will, he will. But you see, he, he hurt his hand. Come on, show Eddie your hand, Bergen. Come on. I said show him. Hey, you, you see? Why take a chance? Too much money involved to don't, take chances. Don't talk so much, Eddie. No, we're going to leave these two behind. The less they hear, the better. Oh? Eddie was a pleasant-looking, tall, wiry young man. Blonde hair and blue eyes, the Huck Finn physical type. But he wore a shoulder holster, housing a thirty-eight caliber pistol. Another crazy man, I thought. But not cold and calculating like George. You were asleep when we cleaned out your camp, Bergen. I hope you don't mind. Yeah, would it matter? Well, we've no reason to kill you or Ellen. Now, you may doubt that, but it's true. What have you done to Dr. Canfield? Ellen. What happened to Dr. Canfield was really a shame. You see, he seemed like such a nice fellow. Full of jokes, but don't you see? Dr. Canfield made one very bad mistake. He signed his letter, John. But that's his name. No, Bergen, that wasn't his name. If it had been, I'd have caught you yesterday. You... And Ellen would be free as a bird. You killed Dr. Canfield? Yes, I'm afraid I did, Ellen. I'm sorry about that, but it couldn't be helped. Now, if Bergen here cooperates and writes what I say, we can leave the two of you up in one of those cliff dwellings with food and water. And maybe you can figure out a way to get down after we're gone. You see, it's your only chance, and I suggest you take it. Dr. McKee, don't write that letter. Ellen, please. You're pretty, Ellen, but not very smart. We're just here on business. Uh, too many dead bodies <laughs> you know, makes it so much more difficult. I mean, it's nothing personal about it. It's simply a matter of money. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the way it is. Uh, what do you want me to write? Well, you'll have to say you're leaving here, all three of you. All three of us? That's right. You, Helen, and Dr. Canfield. The big Navajo handed me a ballpoint pen. Then I delivered quite an authentic performance of suffering. The pain shot clear up my arm. My hand shook, and real beads of sweat popped onto my forehead as I managed a very sloppy... Dear Dr. Green... Well, that's fairly close. Not close enough. I could write it left-handed and say I hurt my right one. Now, why would you write Dr. Green a left-handed letter with Dr. Canfield around? Well, Eddie? Whatever you think. I don't know the odds. Yeah. Let me see that hand again. Why not shoot us now and get it over with? Don't challenge me. I'm liable to take you up on it. But maybe if I soaked it, I... Eddie, take him up to the cliff place. The girl, too. You think we got time Just for that? Just do as I say. Now move. And 
Many led us at gunpoint up the slope to the cliff dwellings. They looked like Anasazi ruins. This was probably where Canfield had come. There was plenty of loose sand around. I noticed, too, hidden behind a screen of bushes, several camping articles, including a two-burner kerosene stove and two bedrolls. Whoever they were waiting to get a call from had to be camped elsewhere. But in the deep shade of late afternoon, I hadn't seen the aluminum ladder. Eddie assembled the four sections while the big Navajo kept his machine pistol pointed at us. You got it, Eddie? All set. Ellen, Bergen, after you. We climbed up the ladder to the top of the cliff dwelling. Then down a smaller ladder through a hole in the roof into a dark, dusty, windowless room. Once inside, Ellen and I sat on the floor. Someone took the ladder away. We were trapped, suspended in air. I could see Eddie's chin above us through the hole. What's he doing? I, I don't know. It's the other one I'm worried about. Are you frightened? Uh, yes. So am I. You aren't really going to write that letter, are you? Uh, not if I can help it. Do you think there's a chance we can get away? You picking up anything, George? Hey, listen. What's he say? You hear something? A radio? No. Do you? I'm not sure. What's that? I think he's coming up. What did he do to us? Try, try not to think about it. Bergen, I'm scared. Gurley says tomorrow afternoon will do it. Gurley's been wrong before. Uh, not this time. This is it. I believe it when I see it. Oh, you'll believe it when you count your money. We fly tomorrow. Oh, hot damn. What's that all about? We'll know soon enough. Well, now, how are we feeling? Hmm. Quiet, I see. Bergen, I think we'd better try to get that knuckle of yours back in the joint. I'm going to be busy tomorrow, but by tomorrow night I'll want that letter. Okay, I think my hand's broken, not just dislocated. <laughs> I feel like that when they're pulled out. We can get it back in the socket. No. Ellen. Eddie, shine a light down here, will you? That's it. Now, Bergen, this may hurt. Sadist. All right, go ahead. I'm ready. Go! I had a dream. A dream I was buried alive. I could feel the sand gathering in my throat, sifting down through the windpipe into my lungs. And then I remembered where I was. My hand felt heavy, but the pain was nearly gone. I could feel it was tightly wrapped in some sort of a bandage. As my eyes adjusted to the dim light, I saw the horizontal figure of Ellen Leon against the wall. She was breathing deeply in sleep. Miss Leon, wake up. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Miss Leon. What? Shh, shh. Dr. McKee, are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Too fine, I'm afraid. My hand feels much better. What time is it? How long was I asleep? Well, I don't know. Look, where did they go? I heard them outside before, down below. Both of them? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Where are you going? Look, nowhere. I'm trying to think of a way we can get out of here. The big one took the ladder when he left. I heard him say that he was going someplace. When? I don't know. Did you hear the truck leave? Yes. No. I, I mean, I'm not sure. 
I could have been dreaming. Oh, think. This is very important. Well, they said something about a, a girly. Yes, yes, I did hear the truck. It's getting lighter. It must be morning. If the big one's gone, we've got a chance. Dr. McKee, do you, do you have any idea what this is all about? Who's girly? I don't know what's going on. Maybe they're crazy, the whole lot of them. Why did they want you to write that letter? He explained why. Well, you know as well as I do that if they're planning to let us go, they wouldn't need a letter. Now, stop treating me like a child. That's what Jim would do. Jim? Fiancé. What? The man I came out here to find in the first place. Uh, the engineer, Mr. Hall? Dr. Hall. Sorry. Don't be. Well, I, I didn't realize you were engaged. I don't think Jim did either. That's why I came. To tell him it was over. Why? Uh, I'm sorry. It's none of my business. I want to tell you. All right, go ahead. I'm listening. Well, he's tall. And rather slim. He's got blonde hair. In fact, he looks a little bit like Eddie. Only he's not nuts. It's nuts about one thing, though. You? I wish. No, it's money. Jim's very ambitious. Too ambitious, I think. He gets angry about it. He says he's caught in a system that gets you on a treadmill. And I'm quoting him. He says it takes a million dollars to beat the system. Pay your own ransom. And buy back your own life. <laughs> well, what's he doing out here? I mean, no gold or oil or anything like that. I don't really know what he's doing out here. Well, I hope you find him. Thanks. Somehow, I hope I don't. Are you married? No, not anymore. What happened? My wife died. No, that's... That's a lie. My wife left me. There was someone else, someone with a lot of money. Not a million dollars, but... You don't have to explain. You know, Miss Leon, I want to. Ellen. What's that? Come here. Look at this. Face. What is it? Hieroglyphics? Oh, this is uh, Hopi Kachina. Oh, I forgot you're an anthropologist. Another doctor. Yeah, but a dumb one. The Anasazis built these cliff dwellings, but the Hopis lived here since. And the Hopi always built an escape hatch at the bottom of one wall to keep from being penned in if they were attacked. You think there's a way out? No, uh, which side is the cliff on? This one. Let me help you. No. I mean, yes, Ellen. Something fell out of your pocket. Yes, cigarettes. Hey, wait a minute. Somebody or something wants us to have a fighting chance. What do you mean? Yesterday, when we stopped back at camp... Yes? I threw a pocket knife into my shirt pocket. The Navajo must be both crazy and dumb. I still have it. Are you still scared? Yes. Well, that's good. We'll need that edge. There are three, maybe four people in this canyon. Within the next hour, two of us are going to die. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Blessing Way. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour.
You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Tony Hilleman's The Blessing Way was adapted for radio by Kim Weisskopf. Ed Nelson is McKee. Barbara Anderson is Ellen. And Ty Andrews is the Navajo. Featured in the cast is Tommy Cook as Eddie. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To the Zero Hour... Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Tony Hillerman's haunting tour of terror. The Blessing Way. Starring Ed Nelson, Barbara Anderson, and Ty Andrews. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Definition. Murder. The unlawful killing of another human being with malice aforethought. Dr. Bergen McKee has seen the bodies of two murdered men. He's seen the expression of utter terror frozen on their still faces. Two men. One a young Navajo running from the law. The other a university professor like himself. And he has met the murderer. In fact, at this moment, Dr. Bergen McKee is being held captive by the one who buried those two men alive. And he's not alone. Miss Ellen Leon is with him. And that's the rub. McKee is a man betrayed by a woman. 
snubbed by his former wife and bitter still. But now there's no time for painful echoes from the past. Everything is now. He's been asked to write a letter explaining the disappearance of three people. One he knows is already dead. Dr. Bergen McKee must bargain for time, because that letter, if written, will surely be his epitaph. The conclusion of this week's story, The Blessing Way, follows after this word. Helen and I worked furiously racing the light of day. There was no sound from outside, so we had to be especially quiet in our work. Finally, we'd cleared away enough rock so that there was a hole large enough to squeeze through. Where do you think it goes? I don't know. The Hopis are smart people. My guess is, since we're on a side cliff, it leads up. It's better. What if Eddie's out there? Uh, chances are he is. But down below. Now, you wait here. I just want to see if there's a way out. Be right back. I crawled through the hole and found myself in another smaller room, leading out to a shelf that gradually narrowed to a mere ledge. I couldn't risk crawling and knocking off a loose rock. I had to do it standing up, staying as close to the sandstone wall as I could. I inched my way out. It was almost full dawn now. Sunlight, ready to burst, quivered just below the horizon. There was no sign of the Land Rover, or Eddie, for that matter. Suddenly I realized I could be seen from down below. There was a dead juniper about five feet further out on the ledge. I had no way of knowing what lay beyond, perhaps an escape route, or Eddie just waiting to blow my head off. It was a chance I had to take. Yeah, still lucky, I guess. Just on the other side of the tree was a fault running from the canyon floor 50 feet below me, clear up to the top about another 150 feet, a chimney, a way out. Then I heard Eddie. Looking through the dead tree, I could see him. He was packing up the gear in camp. I calculated it to be about 100 feet back to where Ellen was. A third of that distance, I'd be out in the open, a sitting duck. I never even looked, just walked, expecting at any moment to be shot off the ledge. Miraculously, I made it. Bergen, I was so worried. Eddie's out there. I heard him whistling. Yeah, I found a way out, but it's no good. He can see me. And Eddie would kill you. Right. Unless... Unless I can kill him first. I didn't really have a plan. There wasn't time for that. The big Navajo would be back soon, and that would be the end. So, off the top of my head, I quickly devised a scheme that stood a remote chance of working and presented the least danger to Ellen Leon. I'd go back out on the ledge just to the point where I'd still be hidden. Ellen would then get Eddie's attention by throwing a rock out of the roof hole. In that moment of confusion, I'd dash across to the juniper and hide somewhere back in the crevasse created by the fault... How can you hope to defend yourself against his gun? Well, let me worry about that. Just remember, don't give him any reason to shoot you. Don't scream or, or try to stop him from coming after me. I want him to. But why? We've got the edge, remember? Fear. And believe me, I'm scared out of my mind. Ellen was to wait approximately 15 minutes, then heave the stone. 
Once Eddie had been summoned, he'd have to set up the ladder. Hopefully, by the time he reached Ellen, I'd have found a suitable place to hide. She would tell him that I'd gone for the police, and she would supply him with accurate directions as to my escape route. Up to a point, everything worked perfectly. I was ready in my ambush when the sound of raised voices split the air. I said you go first. I ain't never shot no woman before. But I ain't got no code saying I won't. Take your hands off of me. Dr. McKee is gone. You'll never find him. He left an hour ago in that direction. Come on, move it. No. Bergen, run! Run! A single gunshot reverberated throughout the canyon and a swarm of ravens exploded from a distant cliff. There was a sinking in the pit of my stomach. Helen was dead. I would be next. I studied my position in the dark cul-de-sac, huddled behind a pinion tree between the wall and the crevasse. There were two ways Eddie would come looking for me. If he believed Ellen, he would approach from around the dead juniper, at which point I would have a split-second advantage. But my only defense would be a rock. I could throw it at him before he saw me, but my aim would have to be perfect. And what would I aim for? His head or the gun? If Eddie were cautious, he'd come from the other side, and I'd be too far from him to do anything at all. Then I realized that I was standing behind a weapon, the pinion tree. I tore the sleeve off my shirt, wrapped it twice around one branch. There was adequate pull, if only it wouldn't snap. And my hand throbbed violently. McKee, I had to shoot your woman. Killing you is going to cost me $30,000. Don't make me do it. Eddie was on the ledge. I had the branch secured. My pocket knife poised. I could see his left shoulder. And part of his back he had to take one step more. He did, and he saw me. McKee! Eddie's reflexive leap had carried him off the ledge into the crevasse. I looked down at him. He was caught in an awkward jackknife sitting position between the rocks. He was bleeding from the nose, mouth, and ears. His pistol lay on a shelf about halfway down. There was no chance I could reach either. I... I fell off. Yeah. I was going to draw $45,000. Fifteen when they were finished. And thirty if nobody knew about it. A year from now. I got no feeling in my arms. Eddie. Eddie, who's girly? What are you people doing in here? George was getting more because he made the contract. Eddie, when's George coming back? George works out of Los Angeles. He'll kill you and your woman. Then, then he'll go away. Didn't you kill him? <laughs> Eddie! Ellen had taken one bullet. It had cut through her cheek. Deflected past the jawbone, struck the top of her shoulder and tore out through the back of her shirt. But she was still breathing, 
I climbed down the ladder in return with gauze and disinfectant. I bandaged her wounds and carefully moved her to the adjacent smaller room, then filled in the hole I'd made to escape. Hopefully, George wouldn't find it when he returned. I had to get help or she'd bleed to death. Standing over her, I found that I was crying. She moved slightly. Perkin? Lie very still, Eleanor. I'm going to climb out and get help. Perkin. Be careful. It was a struggle up the fissure of the cliff. Each precious second countless. Yellow Leon was everything that mattered. The sun was almost directly overhead when I found the wires. Two cables heavily insulated with gray rubber almost invisible on the rocky ground. They ran in two directions. I was somewhere in the middle. I would have to guess which end led where. One would be connected to some sort of electrical gadget. The other might lead me to someone who could help Ellen's fiancé, Dr. Jimmy W. Hall. I headed northwest along the Branch Canyon. At the rim, the cable looped downward, disappearing under the brush. The canyon was much shallower than many ruins. Down below in the canyon, someone was hammering... Then I saw the truck. A green van, barely visible. I I felt the pain before I heard the shot. Suddenly I was on the ground, gasping for breath. I had fallen and rolled into a clump of bushes. The sound of a two-cycle engine was coming from below. Probably a generator. Doc. Dr. Hall wouldn't have heard the shot above the voice. I looked down at my right shoulder and saw my own blood flowing from the wound. Then I heard him up above, on the rim. I knew who it was, even before I saw the black felt hat with the silver band. dragged myself behind a fallen ponderosa pine where it was cool and dark in the shadow. Just behind me were two saplings. I pulled myself up by a slack cable. The whole right side of my body was numb. The big Navajo had circled below me. He was stalking me again, taking no chances. He knew I'd been hit My blood was all over the rocks. I remembered what he had said yesterday. Nobody gets away. I whittled feverishly with my pocket knife, shaping a branch into a lance. I had already stripped a section of rubber from the cable and tied it between two saplings, forming a catapult. Well, Bergen, we meet again. If you'll hold still, I'll make it as painless as... The shaft struck him low in the chest and carried him ten feet backwards. I crawled out of the thicket to where the big Navajo had fallen. His mouth was wide open and his eyes were glazed with a look of death. 
I picked up the wolf skin and the rifle. It wasn't the same weapon he had before. It seemed incredibly heavy. I stumbled toward the sound of the generator. Put down the rifle. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw the red baseball cap. The Indian boy was standing behind a clump of willows beside his horse, the reins dragging. He held a short-barreled rifle in his hands. It was, it was pointed directly at my head. Where's the other witch? Well, he's dead. I killed him. This is his witch skin. Look, I, I'm not a witch. I am one who teaches in school. Please, there, there's a green truck down there. You must let me get to that truck. The man there will help me. All right. You walk. I will follow. The van was parked in a thicket just off the canyon floor. Beside it, a generator was running. Suddenly, a man appeared in the doorway of the van. My vision was blurred, but I could see he was blonde and wore a denim jacket. What the hell happened to you? Got shot. Who are you? How'd you get here? Don't talk. Listen, are you Jim Hall? How'd you know that? Tell this boy here I'm not a witch. What? Ellen Leon's been shot. She's up at that big cliff dwelling in the canyon. D did you say Ellen Leon? Man shot her. Needs help. Who shot her? Man named Eddie. He fell. What happened to Eddie? Tell me, where's Eddie? Was there a man with him? Where's the man who was with him? Answer me, uh, damn you! You must help Ellen. She's dying. You were right, boy. This man is a Navajo wolf. Give me a rifle. Put the rifle in the truck, then. We'll tie him up and go find the police. Hand me the rifle and I'll put it in the truck. Oh, don't. Don't give him the rifle. That's right, Billy. Don't give it to him. Joe. The party's over, Mr. Hall. I was aware first of the vague, sick smell of ether. Then the feel of hospital sheets that cast on my chest and the splint bandaged tightly on my right hand. The room was dark. I saw the silhouette of a man standing by the drawn shades. From the slight paunch, I knew it was Joe Leaporn. Bergen? Did you find her? Sure, we found her before we found you. Uh, was she... She's right down the hall. Broke her cheekbone and shoulder, lost some blood. Uh, Will, will she be all right? Oh, she heals faster than you. You've been in here two days. You've got more Navajo blood in you now than I do. Doc said you had a busted oil pan. Took ten gallons. Yeah. Does she know about her boyfriend? Yep. I told her everything. She was more concerned about you. Hall's dead, you know. Huh? Walked right away from me into the truck. Locked himself in and shot himself. Walked right in with me standing there. He must have been crazy. Crazy to get rich. You call it ambition. Sometimes we call it witchcraft. You remember the origin myth when first woman sent the heron diving back into the fourth world to get the witchcraft bundle? 
She told him to swim down and bring back the way to make money. You're a knockoff the philosophy, Joe. Look, what took you so long to find us? You can thank Billy Nez for finding you at all. Billy Nez? Horseman's brother? The kid with the red baseball cap. That was Billy Ness? Did he find Ellen, too? I've noticed this before. Bella County women are smarter than you Bella County men. Miss Leon got a hold of some kerosene and made herself a smoky little fire. You could see it for miles. Now, why didn't you think of something simple like that? Climbing up that fault was showing off. Yeah, how was I supposed to know you'd be wandering around out there? I thought the cavalry was supposed to arrive in the nick of time, not the Indians. Joe, I guess you know I, I killed those two men. Eh, not officially, you didn't. Officially, Dr. Canfield and Jim Hall were killed in a truck accident. Miss Leon and you were hurt in the crash. And officially, Eddie Gill and George Johnson never existed. Uh, what was what was going on in there, anyway? What was Hall doing? It's a secret. Like hell, it's a secret. If you want me to tell some phony story about Canfield getting killed in a truck wreck... You don't have secrets. I'm not supposed to know myself. Know what? Did you notice that Hall had portable radar sets all over the plateau? I noticed the wires. In fact, they probably saved my life. Hall was set up directly under what the military calls its bird path. When the birds flew over from the Tonepaw Range on their way to White Sands, Hall's radar was feeding information into a computer he had in the van. Hall was putting it onto tapes. Yeah, but how did Hall get mixed up with the other two? A common interest. Money. They all work for the same organization. Who? What organization? One that's always interested in money. They're too big to fool with. George Johnson was a known associate. The FBI knew him as George Thomas, Amos Raven, and the Big Raven, too. <laughs> a relocation Indian. California Navajo. I knew he was a stranger. I heard him talking about the litany of were animals. He had it all wrong, or at least it was another expert's opinion, not mine. <laughs> well, that's what had me hung up. I kept expecting him to act like a Navajo, but he was acting like a white man. Well, thanks a lot. If he was a Navajo, no matter what he was doing in there, killing horsemen would have screwed it up for him. You put it together, a lot of money in a killing, it's not natural, and it's not Navajo. Why did he kill horsemen? <sighs> hey, come on, Joe. It's all part of the same truck accident. Well, Johnson was working on clearing an access road so they could get to the radar sets more easily. While he was busy, somebody sneaked down to the truck and stole Johnson's hat. Why? I mean, you were wondering about that. Sam George Takes told me the Nez family was preparing an enemy way. Well, they needed the scalp from the wolf for the ceremony. And Johnson's hat? Billy Nez took it. Boy, he really gets around. Then, from what I said at Shoemaker's about horsemen... Yeah, I understand, Joe. But what I don't understand is why Johnson wanted me to write that letter. I know they didn't want anybody coming in there looking for us, but they were finished. What difference would it make if we were dead or alive? Uh, think about it. If you have a bunch of computer tapes giving the exact performance of the other guy's ballistic missile system, it's worth a bunch of money. But it's worth a lot more if the other side doesn't suspect you've got it, right? Because if he suspects, he changes the system, right? Well, that about does it, my friend. Oh, this is for you. Okay. Your letter? Hey, who opened it? I did. It's uh, from Miss Leon. Well, why did you open it? 
Emma wanted to know how many were coming to dinner on Sunday. I'll tell her to set the table for four. That concludes this week's production of The Zero Hour. Tony Hillerman's The Blessing Way. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days, at the same time, Monday through Friday. So on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to the Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour. Heard each weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Tony Hilleman's The Blessing Way was adapted for radio by Kim Weisskopf. Ed Nelson was McKee. Barbara Anderson was Ellen. And Ty Andrews was the Navajo. Featured in the cast were Tommy Cook as Eddie, Dawes Butler as Billy, Sam Edwards as Hall, and Norman Alden as Joe. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in Monday, and once again, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour.